You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of these crises. My name is Matt Bodker. I'm joined with my good friend, Dr. Stephen Kissler, epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health. How's it going, buddy? Hey, I'm doing all right. How are you doing? Doing great. We had like tons to cover because, gosh, it was last last week. It was just you going solo on a recording, and so much has happened since then. We got lots to talk about, right? Yeah, it's it's pretty wild that like a year after we started this thing, that we're still <laughs> able to fill up as much content as we are. I know. Um, yeah, I'm I'm surprised. I mean, I, I I mean, if probably wasn't for the variant, there wouldn't be quite as much to talk about. But there's so much going on between the variant and the vaccine, all this kind of stuff. So we have a lot to cover, not a lot of time. So let's get started right away. Just a couple things, normal stuff. If you can leave a review, we greatly appreciate it. We love just reading them ourselves. It inspires us. It keeps us motivated. It helps uh, us to get this podcast into more hands. So greatly appreciate that you can do that on Apple Podcasts. And you can find the link to the show notes there. If you want to support us, patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. As little as $5 a month can go a long way to help us continue this going. Or just a one-time donation through PayPal, Venmo, all in the show notes. Okay, I think that's all the big information. Let's get started. Steven, I have a bunch of things I want to riff with you about. And I think this will be really helpful for all the crowds that are listening right now. First thing is... I saw on the Atlantic that hospitalizations have gone down. So they're finally falling, says Atlantic. Now I want to go back to you. Is this good news? Obviously it's good news, but is this like permanent good news? Could we see a winter tapering off in the next three months? Or what do you expect to be happening uh, in the next month or two in light of this kind of hopeful news right now? Yeah, it's like you say, definitely good news. But <laughs> I, I think I've learned to never call anything permanent in this pandemic, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, totally. So yeah, it's you know, it's it's good that the hospitalizations are coming down, and I think that that's that's roughly in line with our expectations, right? We knew that the holidays were probably going to contribute to a fair amount of spread, and we did see spikes in a lot of different places following Thanksgiving and Christmas. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was superimposed over the top of when coronavirus transmission, like the other coronaviruses that are constantly circulating anyway, is <laughs> yeah. always at its highest. And so, mm-hmm. so, so we were really expecting, even from April, I was really expecting this period of time that we've just come through to be the hardest period of time for controlling COVID. And now I think reflecting that we're starting to see cases come down a little bit. So so that's very good. In the absence of these new variants that are coming around, I think that I would expect cases to still continue to sort of bubble along. We would sort of have this long trajectory. But I think that as we're sort of emerging out of the beginning of the year and, you know, spring still feels like a long time away, but epidemiologically speaking, you know, we're sort of at the tail end of what we normally think of as the respiratory virus season. Not quite the tail end, but we're in in the the later half for sure. And so I would expect those to sort of start coming down. Now, experience in the UK shows that even with substantial physical distancing intervention measures, that the new variants that we're seeing can cause substantial spikes in infection, despite what we're seeing. So so that, that sort of throws a curveball that I don't really know how to anticipate here. My guess is that it will it'll continue to make COVID sort of difficult to control. I'm hopeful that we won't see across the country these sort of huge spikes that we saw in the UK, but I do think that it will probably be sort of sustained for a while and that we really won't see major progress until we really increase vaccine uptake and until we sort of emerge from this winter period of time and get into the spring and early summer. So I think we're still in it for a while longer, but, but hopefully it won't be emergency measures, at least not widespread. 
Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So putting these in perspective, you and I talked about this just before we went on that I saw a little graph about flu and how flu is like non-existent right now. It's it's lowest. Now, I don't know how long it's been low. Like, is this the lowest it's ever been in history of recording? I have no clue, but it's almost non-existent and around the world. We barely see it. And I want to bring this to everybody's attention because I think this is a huge indicator to everything that what we're doing is working. So I hear criticism, we hear spikes, we see what California is, what happened to California, thankfully in some areas starting to, to peak and kind of come down and saying, look, the stuff we're doing is not working. But the flu, in my mind, I want to throw this past you, I'm like, isn't this a perfect example that what we're doing is working and the flu is nothing like COVID? The fact that what we're doing right now, making the flu non-existent, and what we're doing right now is making COVID go crazy in certain areas just shows two things. Flu is not nothing like COVID. And I think this is just clear evidence that what we're doing is working. If we weren't doing this, could you only imagine where we'd be in light of the flu where it's at now, what it normally is in a typical time of year? Can you respond back to that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's a great point. And I appreciate you bringing it up because I I hadn't thought about it quite in those terms, but that's you're exactly right. You know, we we've been seeing even over the summer where flu season is at its highest during our summer in the southern hemisphere when it's winter mm-hmm. there, and many southern hemisphere countries basically saw no circulation of the flu. And up in the northern hemisphere, we're still seeing some circulation, but it's much much lower than it normally would be, which is pretty remarkable. So I'll, I'll throw a little bit of scientific jargon back at you to, to basically restate <laughs> exactly what you said. Great. But when we're trying in epidemiology or really any form of, of sort of observational science, even experimental science, but if you want to try to evaluate if something that you're doing has an impact, what you look for is a counterfactual. And that means basically a scenario that that is a control for the thing that you've done. So it's something that you can compare it to to see, you know, what what the effect of your intervention is. So yeah. ideally, you know, throwing all of our ethics and everything out the window, ideally we would have a second earth in which everybody, <laughs> yeah. you know, behaved exactly the same way they do here. And then you would release COVID exactly the same time that it was released here. And you would compare, you know, one place that had interventions, one place that didn't, and you'd be able to compare side by side. Of course, we, we don't have that. Yeah. But flu is 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 a really good sort of counterfactual here because we know a lot about its spread and we know that it spreads in a manner that is that it, that is really similar to covid you know it's it's not identical but it's it's another respiratory virus it it has a lot of the same characteristics and so if if we're tamping down the spread of the flu that much that really shows that we're reducing spread in a big way. And, and yeah, so I, I think that that does show that, that what we're doing is, is effective in reducing the spread of respiratory viruses is very effective. And that if we weren't doing these things, the spread of COVID would be <laughs> probably a lot worse than it is right now. So it's, it's one of the clearest and best points of comparison, I think, that we have, honestly. Great. Good. Well, take that everybody out and hopefully use that as part of the the gospel message of basically trying to get people to understand what we're doing and it's actually working. So I'm going to jump forward a little bit because I know the next thing on our outline is about talking about the variants. But I think maybe let's talk about masks right now because I think this is an appropriate time. Now, you talked about it in a great way last week on the recording. I want to bring it back because this is part of the whole, hey, it's working. And then you have the Atlantic, which you talked about uh, last week saying, why are we wearing better masks? So I honestly, when I read that, was totally confused because I'm a relatively educated person when it comes to COVID because I'm forced to read it every day. And as I was reading things throughout the summer and early fall, 
I kept hearing this kind of message saying, just wear a mask, cloth mask, it's, it's all going to work. You know, save the N95 mask for the hospital. And then even some research I, I, that I have clipped somewhere showing that even N95 compared to just regular masks that are just like considered good masks are not that big of a difference. So just wear the mask. So I've been listening to that, haven't bought N95s, been just wearing cloth masks, right? Thinking that I'm totally doing my job. And then hearing this article, I'm like, wait a minute, now I'm confused. Should I be buying N95 masks? What's the deal? Is there is there like confusing research on masks? Or where did the message get, at least in my opinion, get messed up along the way to say that we're wearing the wrong masks now? Yeah, so I think that's a great point. I would say that the message that I would hope to get across is not that we're wearing the wrong masks, but that we can always do better. And I think that there's there's a sort of a long history in this pandemic and in many of them where where we're sort of letting perfect be the enemy of the good. And I think that's, you know, for example, that that's the that's one of the big issues with the testing as well with with rapid tests, right? We we don't want Mm. A rapid test that has relatively, you know, like middling sensitivity for detecting virus in a body, even if in many ways it's like a very, very good tool. What we want is a vaccine that's 100% effective (laughs) and that doesn't give you any side effects and that will, you know, give you immunity for life. And I think that's been part of the issue with us avoiding uptake of these other very good interventions because we're really sort of seeking after something perfect. And it's, it can be hard to sort of separate those two things out. So from everything we can tell, wearing cloth masks properly helps and, and is a good thing to do. Absolutely. Now, now N95s are engineered specifically to block the spread of respiratory <laughs> pathogens, right? So mm-hmm. so they've undergone a lot of testing, both sort of testing, sort of like looking at how, how it does filtration on like a me- mechanistic level, as well as, you know, trials within hospitals to see how they prevent the spread of infection. So the evidence base behind them is a lot stronger. Part of the issue with the cloth masks is that the evidence base about cloth masks in particular isn't as strong. And so we've had to sort of extrapolate from what we know about other types of masks and then to run some of these studies on the fly as we're going. Now, constructing these studies is actually very difficult because the world's a complex place, right? So anytime, you know, you could wear a mask, but there are all sorts of other things that could make one scenario of disease spread very different from another. So you really need to compare huge populations over long periods of time. And we just don't have the time or the yeah. resources right now to to develop those studies now. now. Now, they're ongoing. They're happening now. But we just don't have all those clear, clear answers yet. Mm-hmm. But that said, based on what we know on the the efficiency and efficacy of masks in the hospital setting, I think there's very good reason to to believe that cloth masks are very effective, but not as effective as N95s. And so, so I think that you know, continue wearing your cloth masks. I think that really the argument, from my perspective, the argument that was raised in the Atlantic is is really not so much from an individual perspective, like why aren't we buying masks and wearing N95s, but rather sort of more from a policy standpoint, like yeah. why, why haven't we invested in this? Why haven't we sort of increased the amount of PPE for people, especially who are working on the front lines, but not in hospital settings, which I, I mean, I've, I've been trying to tweet about and talk about on, you know, the various mm. people interviews that I've had over the course of the year until I've been blue in the face, because like <laughs> that, that's really what we need to be doing. But, but again, it's, yeah. it's an imperfect intervention. You know, what we want, mm. uh, like it's, people are still going to be exposed. And so it's there, there's a lot of complexities here. But I think that really the, the upshot of it all is like, masks really do seem to be effective. Cloth masks can be very effective. They're not going to be as effective as hospital grade N95s. If you have access to one, 
by all means, you can use it. I mean, we're not in the same sort of levels of shortage as we were early in the pandemic, but also be mindful of that, that like we, these also probably aren't things that we should be hoarding, like we were hoarding toilet paper early on, because that could create <laughs> another shortage sure. as well. Yep. So be mindful of it and and think about it. But I think really the people who need to hear this are the people who are investing in their production. And so yeah. that's that's really what we need to be paying attention to now. Great. And it, it, you know, it was saying in this article about, I had no clue about fake N95 masks. Now, do you have any idea of like how to know whether you have a real or, or fake N95 mask? Because we bought like a handful of them a month ago and I remember receiving them like, oh, this is weird. They look totally different than the original ones. Don't have a little filter on them. Say N95, they look a little more flimsy. And I just never thought anything of it until I read this article. I'm like, okay, so there are just public service announcement. There are fake N95 masks, apparently. Do you have any idea of how to know whether you have a real one or not? Yeah. So a real N95 mask, and I think the best way is to just look at pictures of what they should look like yeah. online. And and there's there's a variety of types of N95s. There are hospital N95s, and then there are like industrial N95s, but, but they're all meant to filter the same degree of particles out. Really, the difference is the fit. There are a number of companies that produce them. I mean, 3M is the one that really comes to mind. Yeah, um, they're involved in, in N95 production. So you can be pretty confident if you're buying yeah. from them that it's that's an N95. And N95s, you know, should should have the little rectangle that says N95 on it. Of course you can fake that, but a lot of times the so I guess two points based on some of the things that you've raised. So there are also things called KN95s. Yeah, that's what which, we have. Are, yeah, are are not they're not tested and validated to the same degree that proper N95s are. You can call them maybe like a knockoff variety in a way, but but they're still useful by and large. You know, they they don't again have the same evidence base behind them, but they're they're masks. You know, and <laughs> and so and they they probably <laughs> fit well. You know, yeah. many of them are, are are shaped so that they fit yeah. the face, and that's really one of the key issues. Is that mm. you know. Any mask is uh, one of the primary things that affects how well it works is is how it fits, almost regardless of what it's made of. Now you don't you don't want to like use fishnet for a mask, but like uh, <laughs> if sure. you're not doing that, then the, you know the, the fit is really one of the main things that matters here. And so if you're using a N95 or a KN95 or a cloth mask, really what you want to make sure is that you have a snug fit. Now the other thing is is you mentioned these filters, and so that's something that I would really watch out for. In many cases, like on airlines, they don't even allow masks that have filters on them, like the little plastic filters, because those masks will filter the air coming in, but they don't. They allow air to sort of pass out, and and so there's the filter is sort of a one way filter, and so that means that the mask might provide you some protection, but it doesn't do the main thing that masks do, which is protect the people around you. Mm -hmm. And so really, you want to make sure that the mask is not one of the the ones with a little plastic filter, because that isn't really providing any protection to the people around you. You really want sort of a uniform mask that's made out of cloth or paper, like a surgical mask or an N95, KN95. All of those are good options right now. Okay. Okay, great. That's hugely helpful because I had no idea about the difference between the filter and non-filter. So at least I feel like I'm doing okay. I got some N95 masks on, but for those of you who can get them, get them if you can. And I think I've, this is like a little wake up call for me because I'm wearing a mask anyway. So why not just put in a 95 one? And by the way, those of you who wear glasses, it, I know it's like a miserable experience to wear glass, glasses. I've heard about this anti-fog stuff. I need to buy it, like some spray you put on your glasses and then you, then you can put your mask on. It doesn't fog up your glasses. I think it could be a miracle thing. So I'm going to try that yeah. uh, as well. Yeah. You know, one last thing I would point out with the, with the masks is that I think one thing that I've been doing is it's also, I think, useful for us as individuals to have sort of a spectrum of masks as well. So I have some masks that are 
you know, uh, relatively thin. And like, I, I wear them when I like go outside, but I spend all of my time outside and I'm not going to spend any time with anyone. It's a little easier to breathe through. You know, it has like two layers of cloth. And so, you know, that's fine. And then, but if I know that I'm like, if I were going to spend like a long period of time indoors with a bunch of other people, then I would probably want to use, like if I had an N95, I would probably reserve it for that. And that's sort of one way of getting around sort of creating a surge in demand for the N95s. Because if you're just, you know, if I'm just going on a walk out in my neighborhood, (laughs) you know, in those circumstances, like there's a question as to whether you even really need a mask. If if you're like outside, if you're distanced, like generally up, up here in Boston, like people are still wearing masks when they're out and about, but when they're exercising, often you don't. And, and I think that's fine, you know? Yeah. And so, but if you do choose to wear a mask, like uh, a lighter mask, easier to breathe through is a good idea. N95s save them for hospital workers or for when you're in a situation where you really need it. And, and I think that that'll sort of help everything along. Good. That's a great tip. I'm going to definitely use that because there are times where I just don't want to wear such a heavy mask. I don't even need to. Usually when we're going out to walks, we we live in rural Colorado, so we usually don't wear masks. There's nobody around and we're just out in fields flolic, you know, frolicking around. <laughs> so so it's all yeah. good. Uh, great. Thanks, Stephen. Okay. Let's hit yeah. variants now. This is a big topic. It continues to, to surface. We're going to go back to this. More and more variants are coming out. We don't need to get in the specificity of it. Stephen, you did a great job on the recording last week, kind of explaining of where where we're at and how this kind of came about. And from what I got from it, if I'm if I'm right, because I listened to it after the fact that I published it, did some editing to it, and that is that it seems as though this is kind of like a little bit of an explosion of the mutation, but it's something that's kind of maybe predictable that it it was all kind of revving up towards this. It was kind of following the same kind of you know, iteration process as a, as a mechanism typically does. And then it is now it's at that point where it's just kind of starting to do its mutations and that's where we're at. Is it kind of a, a fair assessment of what you're trying to say in layman's terms? Yeah, that's it. I, I, one of the analogies that I was sort of thinking of is like, is maybe a stretch, but if, you know, when you study science, you study the history of science, you often find that like multiple different people come up with the same ideas at the same time. So like how calculus was like this, Newton and Leibniz and various other people all sort of discovered calculus at the same time. And it's like, why is that? That's crazy. Right. But the part of it is just because sort of the, the, the intellectual scientific atmosphere was such that people could discover calculus. And, and, and so taking this back to the virus, that's sort of what's been happening with the mutations. Like, it's like, why are we all of a sudden having all of these mutations pop up? And it's just that sort of the background, you just needed a sufficient amount of diversity. You needed a sufficient amount of time for these things to build up. And then all of a sudden, all of these different viruses sort of found the same type of strategy and they're all coming up with it at the same time. So it's, it's remarkable. I mean, biological evolution doesn't have to happen that way, but it makes some sense that it does. And yeah. so I think that the fact that we have a lot of different variants sort of popping up right now that we're concerned about is unfortunate, is something that I hoped wouldn't happen, but is also not terribly surprising at this point. So. Okay. Okay. So, so we hear about all these different variants, kind of to be expected, hoping that it wasn't the case. I hear a couple things. So two weeks ago when we were together, we were kind of pretty consistent that at least the Great Britain mutation, the UK one, was highly more transmissible. I heard from someone up to 50% more transmissible, but not as deadly. Now, an article just came out from the UK. I saw two of them saying that they declare it more deadly. So I'm going to lump these in. And then now I hear also South Africa, this variant, which is different, being that it, may, it, it, it evades the immunities that we have from the previous infection. So we have these two. Any kind of research you've seen on this, is that true that it looks more deadly in the UK? And does a South African, does, does it have a tendency to avoid 
the antibodies from natural immunity? And does that mean that we the vaccine won't work with it? Yeah, so I'll I'll try to tackle each of those. So I have not been able to find the primary data that the UK declaration that this virus was more deadly was based on. So so while I can't weigh in for sure and say that that is or is not the case, I do trust the people who are advising the government over there at the moment. And so I, I anticipate that they've they've largely, you know, that they've communicated well and, and and done done the science to the best of their ability. Now, there's also a question as to whether something was lost in translation and like what exactly do we mean by more deadly? As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, a virus that's more transmissible on the population level is going to be more deadly because it's going to infect more people and lead to more deaths overall. But I think really what's in question here is, is the probability of death in this case per infection higher as well? That's a lot harder thing to get a handle on because we we still don't even know how many infections are even happening with the with the non-variant version. Now, I, I, I do feel like this reflects a lot of the concerns and questions that we had about the infection fatality rate early on in the pandemic. And a lot of that was rooted in the fact, again, that we didn't know how much was spreading. And so there's this bias where you usually identify the more severe cases. And so it, it can artificially inflate the infection fatality rate a little bit. Now, of course, there's, and we talked about this back in April, I think too, but on the other side, if the infection is increasing, then you're, you're not, then basically there's, there are more people who will die from it than you've observed so far. So that can cause it to go the other direction. Mm -hmm. So there's still an awful lot of uncertainty and all of those same principles still apply with the new variant. An added complexity here is that one of the features of this new UK variant is that it knocks out one of the primers in the PCR test that's used to identify it. Oh, so there are still two others that are effective, but one of them knocks out knocks out the PCR. And so if it basically makes the possibility of missing the new variant a little bit higher. And so that that affects things as well. And so surely if somebody is, you know, in the hospital and is really sick, then you're going to really try to be sure what exactly they have. But but we might be missing a lot of the other less severe cases, partly because of the biology of the virus now too, yeah. um, because it's sort of found a way to evade the test on some level, not completely, but partially. And so all of this plays into the fact that estimating this is really hard. I think it's important that this that, that, that they've declared that this is potentially a more deadly version of the virus. And I think it's something we need to continue to look into. But I think really the bottom line is that it, it's pretty clear at this point that it's more transmissible. And that's really the, the main point of concern at the moment. And so, yeah, so there's that. Great. Well, then now let's get into this because we, we, we're dealing with the mutations. It's kind of little dark talk of like, what's the future? And now Moderna has come into this mix again, right? With some great news. So we want to talk about what's going on with Moderna in light of what they saw with its current vaccine and its efficacy with the mutations and what they're preparing for now with the variants. Yeah. And Thanks for thanks for priming me. I, I realize I, I didn't quite get into the second part of your question yeah. about immune evasion either, but that, that absolutely links up with this as well. So a part of what we've observed with the new variant and the way it interacts with the immune system is that in many cases, it doesn't prompt as strong of a B cell immune response. So that's, again, one of the arms of the immune response that we've studied. 
part of the reason why we, we know that arm of the response is because it's easier to identify. You can you can measure a person's B cells in their blood by just taking blood serum and, and measuring it, basically. Whereas the T cells are sort of a lot more hidden. They're a lot harder to measure. But we also think that T cells are the things that are behind a lot of the immunity that lasts for a long time. So while the B cell response does decay, there's still a lot more we need to learn about the T cell response. And so we have this now, now Moderna sort of pitching their hat in the ring and making some comments mm-hmm. about this. So, so they've been closely studying the effect of their vaccine on the novel variants. And based on what I've, what I've read, and admittedly, I've only read it this morning because I think that's when the first <laughs> press releases came out. But it seems like the Moderna vaccine is a little bit less effective against the, I think they were talking about in particular, the South Africa variant now, okay. but only a little bit. It's still, the, the bottom line is that the vaccine is still effective against against the the South Africa variant. I, I don't know exactly what the numbers are, and I don't know what the, the, if those have been released yet, but it still does have high efficacy, even if not quite that like 95%, 95%. that we saw before. And the cool thing about this, though, is that so is that they're they're already working on producing a update to the second dose that would be more specific to the to the new variant. And this is one of the really cool things about the mRNA vaccine platform is because you can do this sort of thing on the fly. So, this is part of why these mRNA vaccines were the first ones to come out in the first place because all you need uh, this is glossing over an awful lot of complexity, <laughs> but all you need. Is the genetic sequence of the virus, and then you can basically start making a vaccine against it, against the specific pieces. Now, now you need to know which parts of that genome are important for eliciting an immune response. So it does take a lot of ingenuity and a lot of testing and this kind of thing. But what's nice now is that we've done a lot of that basic testing, and now we're sort of just trying to tweak something that we've already got. And with other vaccine platforms, that can be incredibly difficult because you have to generate an entirely new protein, and you don't know how that's going to interact and how it's going to form. But with the mRNA vaccine, it's really just sort of adjusting that genetic code. And we're really good at making mRNA sequences. We can synthesize those very easily. And so it's really just a matter of swapping that out. And then we can sort of stay up to date. So it's it, these mRNA vaccines are potentially a, a huge breakthrough, basically, in our, if you call it almost like an evolutionary arms race against evolving pathogens. Because we can stay a lot more on ahead of that curve, and and stay up to date. You know, we we only found out about these variants. You know, I, I guess it's been basically two months that we've known about them potentially circulating, and about a month that we've really known that it's that there's something to be concerned about. And now we're already talking about a, a vaccine that targets that specific variant. Like that's that's pretty remarkable. Before you know, I think Massachusetts only saw its first case of the variant like a week ago. Colorado had one a couple of weeks before, but it doesn't seem to be in that widespread circulation in the U.S. And we're already talking about ways to prevent it. Pretty remarkable. And and I think we'll only get better at this as as it continues. A lot of questions about how do we regulate that? How do we, you know, like, does it have to go through the same levels of trials and these kinds of things? So there's there's a lot of questions about how we actually implement this thing, but we're going to iron these things out. And I think it's pretty exciting. That's incredible. So you just already said a couple of things that probably is going to answer my question. But taking that out, taking the idea of we don't know about how to regulate this, what kind of test it needs to go through, could this be a game changer mRNA for the flu vaccine? Because it seems like up to this, like we get it and then we just hope that we've targeted it and then we're done for the year, right? We just give it to everybody. I mean, if, if we could somehow reduce the amount of trials and tweak it, could we do like in real time adjustments to the flu vaccine once we say like, oh, here's a dominant one. Here's a new one. Could that be possible? 
Yeah, I, I think so. Now, flu is a very strange virus. Its, its okay. genome is split up into a bunch of different segments. And so I, I don't know if there are other considerations that one would need to develop an mRNA-based flu vaccine. But, but in theory, that should work. Now, one of the really valuable things is both being able to tweak this on the fly. But the way that, the way that we do flu vaccines right now is because since it, since it takes so long to produce the standard type of vaccine that we have, you, we usually look at what was circulating the previous season and make our best guess as to how the virus is going to evolve over the next 12 months. And it's, it's not a total shot in the dark, but it's, it's a shot in pretty low light. You know, it's like, we're trying to do our best, to like figure out where this thing's moving. Yeah. And uh, sometimes we're good. And sometimes, sure. sometimes we really miss, but the nice thing about the MRNA vaccines is that they, in theory would take a lot less time to develop. So you can that, that delay, you basically have a much better sense about what the dominant strain is going to be. Then you can produce the vaccines and hopefully we'll get a much better match. Exactly. Like you said. That's so great. I think there's a ton of potential for this and for a lot of other pathogens that, that we're still trying to get a handle on. Great. A couple of things I want to talk about. I didn't mention this to you, Stephen, but I thought this was really cool. I don't know if you read this in the show notes, but there's two technologies that have surfaced. Researchers are developing color changing stickers for masks to detect COVID-19. So you put it on top of your mask and then by you breathing on it, it changes color. If it, if it, if it's positive, picks up COVID positive, whatever particles. That's a, my layman's term, right? That's super Did cool. You, I, so I hadn't read about the, the color changing masks, but I mean, I think it, it works in a similar way, like the paper strip tests, right? Yeah. Where people have likened them to a pregnancy test yeah, where they, basically yeah. you spit in the tube and you stick this, the thing in the tube and then something changes color. So presumably there's just sort of this like antigen surf thing that's been printed on top of a paper mask and then it, 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 it detects it. I've, I, I have heard of people who have been working on basically putting electrodes into masks also that, that can detect COVID somehow. I don't know how exactly that works, but, but it is something that people have been thinking about so that you can sort of have this like on the fly, really up-to-date information about whether or not you're infected and infectious to other people in the place where you're infectious, which is really cool, right? It's like <laughs> measuring your breath, which is like mm -hmm. what, what you're going to infect somebody else with if you're going to infect them. So I think it's pretty cool. cool. I think I, that these, these sorts of things are like really innovative and yeah. are like, I mean, I'm so thankful we have a vaccine, but like these, these things yeah. are, yeah, are, are really going to help us get through this pandemic and future ones a lot better. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like we should put like a big scarlet letter that shows up on the, on the front of your mask. So they're like, yeah. <laughs> go away. But there's the other one that came out too. Did you see this one, Steven? New studies show how Apple watch can detect COVID. This is really amazing. The, oh, that's the, so, cool. the, so they've realized that up to like 80% effective so far in the two separate tests, totally separate ones can, uh, confirmed this, that I forget, it's like, I forgot what it is, what it's called, but like, I think it's the, the, the distance between heartbeats, whatever it is, whatever it is that it changes when you have COVID and you can actually detect it up to eight and a half days before symptoms that the Apple watch can. Which, yeah, so cool. it still has to go under studies. But just these things just fascinate me. And like, again, this really paving the way for the future of the next pandemic. So I just want to yep. put those in there. Let's talk a little bit more about the vaccine. I saw here a couple signs of the CDC mentioning about Moderna's particular reactions to allergies and those kind of things, what they call yeah, allergic reactions. I want to throw up past you. With Moderna particularly, or maybe Pfizer, which one, does one or the other, do they have a higher rate of, of reactions than the typical vaccines? I know Mark laid the precedent well over a month ago that just FYI, this is for all vaccines, right? It's not specific right. to, so is this just a, a hyper response to this is what vaccines do and millions of people are getting them? Or do you detect this as a higher rate with the mRNA of allergic reactions? 
Yeah, I, I, from what I've seen now, I, I haven't actually compared the numbers directly, but sort of anecdotally, which I should never say as a scientist, but nevertheless, <laughs> I mean, it, it does seem like it's pretty much in line with what we see. Like many of the people who have gotten allergic reactions have a history of allergies, either to vaccines or to just things in general. And, and importantly, you know, we have a pretty good, like, we're very good at treating allergic reactions. You know, we know we know what to do with those. And so even when you do have an allergic reaction, you know, you're, it's usually right after you've gotten the vaccine and you're still in the healthcare facility. Usually they have you stick yeah. around for at least 20 minutes after you've gotten it to yeah. monitor for these things. And if it happens, you're treated. And then generally people go along their merry way. Now, now I don't want to downplay, you know, there are, we have heard a couple of reports of, of deaths that have been yep. associated or at least on the heels of the vaccine. And I think that those need to be taken very seriously and and studied and so that we understand exactly what happened in those cases. But by and large, it really seems like the, at least in terms of the allergic reactions and the severe reactions, they're, they're quite rare and in line with what we've seen with other vaccines. Now, the, the allergic reactions, of course, differ from the standard immunological reaction, the thing that makes everybody feel like crap after they yeah. get the mRNA vaccine, right? And so that that is relatively stronger compared to, for example, the flu vaccine. But that's that's not an allergic reaction. That's an immunogenic reaction. And that just shows that the vaccine is working. You don't need to feel those symptoms in order for the vaccine to work. It might still be working otherwise. But it is a indicator that the vaccine is working if you're if you're really feeling crappy <laughs> yeah. after, after you've gotten the vaccine. But that's different than the allergic reaction, which, you know, where you might need a medical intervention. And so, so I just wanted to make sure to distinguish those two things. But basically what we've seen, while the immunogenic reaction tends to be stronger than what we're used to with other vaccines, the allergic reaction seems to be pretty well on par. Good, good. That reminds me, I didn't mention that. That's been great uh, of my family. So my side of the family, my wife's, my sister just got the vaccine. I think it's Moderna, I think four or five days ago because she is kind of in the healthcare industry. So she got that and had very little side effects, maybe a little sluggish the next day, but she didn't know if that was because she was a sluggish in general or because of the vaccine. And then my parents, which is really big news today, they're getting the vaccine. So super excited for them. And then we mentioned, I think weeks ago, I proposed a question to you and Mark about my grandmother who, yes, got the vaccine like a week ago and seems all be going well with that. So it's nice to see people in my immediate family already getting the vaccine and just seeing it really starting to spread to more and more people. The, a bit of good news, Stephen. I don't know if you saw this. We didn't talk about it again, but study says Pfizer vaccine immunity is so strong it might prevent COVID-19 transmission. So that is that, that, yeah. that's that's one of the big questions we had, right? The, the, that is one of the big questions. Yeah. So yeah, and it, that's that's one of the main things that I think people are studying and starting to monitor now. I'd seen something similar. Actually, I think I think maybe this was the same thing with the Pfizer vaccine, where they they were looking at how much virus the body produces and shows that it that also is less basically that that you can still get infected even after you've gotten the vaccine, but you definitely produce less virus, which is great. So that's that's the first thing you need to lower the amount of transmission. Similarly, with the new variants, one of the things we've seen is that those those seem to cause you to produce more virus, and we know that they're more transmissible. So it does seem that this virus, the transmissibility really does correlate pretty well with how much virus you're producing. And so it's not a perfect proxy. You know, we need to still measure how much infection is actually happening in the community. But I think that is pretty good evidence that there's there's transmission blocking behavior. We, we still don't know exactly how strong that is, but but at least it 
it seems to be there. So, yep. It's good news. So hopeful news. Yeah. This is like a hopeful week. Last question I'm going to propose to you. We talked about this and this is, okay, it's a whole issue about the vaccine scheduling. Now there's two parts of this. I think we're going to focus on one part today. It's first of all, you know, the schedule, the scheduling is more of, do we give it three weeks out or six weeks out? AstraZeneca had mentioned in one of their studies that as far as 12 weeks out might be like actually beneficial, eight to 12 might actually be more beneficial, but it's still preliminary. We don't really know. And I think Pfizer and Moderna is more like three to four weeks out for the booster, the second round. But here's my question. And this was in the article. I'll put this in the show notes as well, is we're going back and forth two weeks ago about, oh, do we, do we, do we keep the second dose or do we relinquish that to give more people the first dose so we can get, get the, the vaccine in more hands of people, especially in light of the variant. Now, as you mentioned last week in the recording, I know you mentioned weeks before, is one possibility because of the variant is because it's been in the body for so long because of either treatments and hospitalizations, and, it's, and, it's, and it has a time to sit in a body to mutate more and more and more. It's a possibility. It's a scenario. This article suggested, wouldn't that be a dangerous thing to... Uh, relinquish the second dose and have a bunch of people half vaccinated, could that in theory present another round of mutations by having people not fully vaccinated so it can get in their system and stay in longer? Any thoughts on this, Stephen? Yeah. So I would say that it is, you know, it is a possibility that people have, that colleagues have raised as well, that, that not fully vaccinating people could potentially affect the way that the virus evolves and might, you know, un- under that scenario that you just outlined could potentially contribute to like a vaccine escape variant, which means that the the, the virus would evolve to no longer, you know, so that the vaccine would no longer be effective or as effective. But a couple of counterpoints to that. So first, what it looks like is that from the data that we have available is that the first shot that you get provides very good levels of immunity. But the question is how long that immunity lasts. And so really what the second booster shot is for most vaccines that we have is is not necessarily increasing the total amount of immunity that you have, but making sure that it lasts a long time. And so that first shot will probably give you a very high degree of immunity, but that may decline in 12 to 24 weeks. And that's why you need the booster so that hopefully it can give it to you for five years. And so I think that, and the other thing is that one of the most useful things for a virus to have if it wants to evolve and to mutate around a vaccine is for there to be a lot of it out in circulation, right? And so if there's a huge population of virus circulating, then it has a lot more opportunities to evolve that resistance to whatever we have, to treatments, to the test, to the vaccine, whatever. And so one of the good things about the strategy of vaccinating as many people as possible at once is that it will hopefully reduce the number of cases a lot faster. And so that sort of counteracts this, this, a scenario that you just outlined, where where now there's just less virus, so it's less capable of evolving those sorts of things, which is good. So it's a complex question. You know, there there are forces working in opposite directions, and so we can't know for sure how it'll play out. But I think that there's very good reason supporting the idea of getting as many people vaccinated with the first dose as possible. And I think that even from the the perspective of the evolution of the virus, that still may be the optimal scenario. Great, that's awesome. Well. I love this episode because I had lots of questions. You answered all of them, Stephen, and I feel way more hopeful. Because I mean, man, with all these variants, all this news, obviously yeah. some of it being sensational, some of it being a little bit accurate, right? That just could get a little discouraged of like, man, I don't want to get to a point where we're like, hey, the vaccine's here. Your, your turn's up, Matt. And it doesn't work. You know, that's, that's, <laughs> right. that's what I don't want to hear. So with right. Moderna this morning and what you provided, I'm a lot more hopeful. And I hope you are as well, those of you who are listening. If you want to get in contact with Stephen, it sounds like he's an 
active Twitterer. So S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-S-S-L-E-R. Check him out there. Follow him. He's got a lot of great information that he's sharing there. You can contact us just through my email address, matt at livingthereal.com. Let us know how it's going, what's going on, if we can answer questions for you. I know we still have questions to answer, but it's hard because we get delayed and then there's so much stuff that needs to be put out here to help get us informed with all the differences of opinion oh. in the in the market. Yeah. I also wanted to give a quick shout out. Mark and his wife, Katie, also just got an article accepted at the New England Journal of Medicine. It's not on COVID, but it has to do with attention, the attention oh. of the caregiver in the clinical setting. It's awesome. If anybody's interested in taking a look at some more of the research that Mark does that isn't related to COVID, go check it out. It's it's pretty cool and quite an accomplishment. So That's awesome. Can you give it to me and I'll put in the show notes? Do we have the link yep. to it? Okay. Absolutely. That'd be great. That's phenomenal. I had no idea. Way to drop that bomb at the very end, Stephen. It's always good <laughs> yeah. to leave a, a hanging bomb at the end that people stay stay into the very end. Well, good. I can't wait to read that one. So com. let us know how's it going on. You can support us at uh, patreon.com slash pandemic podcast, as well as one-time donation through Venmo, PayPal, all in the show notes. I hope you have a wonderful week. We'll see you all next Monday. Take care and bye-bye.